Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In this episode, we will take a different journey on our narrative. We're going to put a pin in our coverage of the Rising's actual events in this episode, and instead tease out some of the moral arguments and debates of 1916. We will also begin with an exercise in imagination, which I found to be quite effective, and felt the need to share. By the end of this episode, you should be well positioned to know where I stand on the debate going forwards, as well as hopefully feel armed yourself to deal with the kind of difficult questions that the 1916 Rising posed. Above all, I want you guys to be able to see the Rising in a different way, and feel a bit more familiar with the issues of context and morality that are debated when people talk about the Rising today. If that sounds like something you're ready for, then I would say to you, welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents 1916 A special centenary miniseries Exploring the context, characters and controversies Of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history The 1916 Rising My lords, the only information that I am able to give is as follows. At noon yesterday, grave disturbances broke out in Dublin. The post office was forcibly taken possession of and telegraph communications was cut off. In the course of the day, soldiers arrived from the Curra, and the situation is now well in hand. Although as communication is still exceedingly difficult, I am not now able to give the House further particulars. The Lord President of the Council, Robert Crewe. Speaking in the House of Lords, 25th of April, 1916. In the First World War, there were well over 100,000 Irish Catholics in the fighting ranks. Everyone admired that these boys were spiritually intractable to anyone save an Irish priest. Hence, when in 1917 there was a special appeal issued for Irish chaplains, I volunteered and I went off to France with the blessing and encouragement of every friend I had in advanced Sinn Féin circles in Dublin. 
account of Father Thomas Duggan speaking to the Bureau of Military History, 1947. Had the insurrection not occurred, Irish nationalism would not have united under republicanism, the most extreme and least attainable of the various political outcomes advocated by militant nationalists. It was the Easter Rising that brought republicanism from the margins to the mainstream of Irish nationalism. Words of Irish historian Fergal McGarry, writing in his book Easter 1916, 2010. I want to beg your indulgence for a moment. Imagine that an island with a rich history and proud heritage exists to the west of Europe. Imagine that this island teems with a culture and contains numerous peoples which are distinctive and unique from those on the continent. This island is Great Britain. Now imagine that for whatever reason, Britain fights a war against Germany for the sake of its own survival. Imagine that Britain loses this war. Germany is victorious and makes Britain a pillar of its impressive empire. Germans arrive in large numbers to settle in Britain and create, in the process, a kind of Anglo-German class loyal to the centre in Berlin. German merchants and agents travel in between Britain and Germany, creating bonds between the two countries that become cemented on the basis of mostly mutual benefit, but with all still beholden to the German partner who was understood to always be entitled to the best deals, owing to its superior power to Britain's. Imagine that, within this atmosphere, German officials control how Britain is run. They replace its currency with its own, they subsume and outpace its cultural importance with its own. They control the museums, the factories, what can be sold in shops and what can be heard on the radio. They control what is culturally relevant or acceptable for the time. They develop the means by which British natives can sit in a parliament based in Berlin. This British contingent of representatives manages to push through a small number of reforms over the years, but there is still the blatant elephant in the room. Britain remains under control by foreign rule. The control and influences from the powerful Berlin centre intensifies. Children born after the British defeat know nothing of an independent Britain free from German rule. These children consume the lessons and teachings imparted onto them by German-approved speakers and teachers. British pupils come home to their parents increasingly speaking the German language, since English has become increasingly outdated and useless. After all, in the situation of German domination, German is required to get ahead. English as a language fades into the background, as British children are taken through a revised version of British history in school, and taught that the German way is the right way. All the while, German representatives ensure that what is taught falls strictly in line with the Berlin-approved curriculum. As the years pass and these children grow older, wars inevitably break out, and these children are drafted into the German army to defend Germany's national honour and security abroad. 
Stories are told of how the British soldiers conduct themselves well in these German armies, and that they have a strong martial fervour, but storm clouds seem to be on the horizon in Britain itself. Secret societies fed on a diet of suppression and control dream of something bigger and wish for something more. They wish to free Britain by an act of arms. They act out and strike while the iron is hot, but they are brutally suppressed by the Germans, who ship the offenders off to penal colonies in faraway lands, ensuring that such acts never occur again. In response to this, resigned British individuals try another tactic. They invest their energies in reviving the British cultural customs and ways, to demonstrate that even though Britain is down after having been occupied for so many years, its distinctiveness will never be forgotten. English, so long considered useless in the Germanic society, makes a spirited comeback as British empowerment becomes the order of the day. Soon British national leagues begin to pop up, arguing for better rights for the British-born citizens against the German immigrant or Anglo-German landed class that is given all the benefits. Berlin reacts to such developments by trying to ease the pressure on the most suppressed Britons, stamping out disaffection by killing the Britons with kindness and hoping that the whole issue will blow over. Many Britons, after all, had proven perfectly happy to join the German administration, the German army or or any other aspect of the German bureaucracy, and they see any change to the status quo as foolish. Germany is good for Britain, they argue, because Germany is making Britain strong again. What good was Britain by herself when she could not even defend herself against foreign attack? Yet, an undeniable undercurrent of dissent continues within Britain despite the gradual easing of the German authority. Some come to regard the German influence as benign, as harmless, as something which can only be a good thing for both countries, since where is the sense in ending such an apparently natural partnership? Yet still an undeniable undercurrent of dissent exists. With the British representatives in Berlin slowing in their efforts to push through any kind of bill that would bring about self-determination, extremist groups begin to pop up across Britain demanding freedom by arms. These groups have been inspired by British heritage, it is understood and they make limited acts of defiance against the German imperial presence. Before long, they are condemned by the German-controlled media, who blacklist them as criminals, as terrorists, and as a danger to the benevolent society that now exists. Though some may sympathise with the aims of these extremist societies, British life has grown surprisingly comfortable with the German domination. At the same time, groups focused on resurrecting the British past with its culture, language and customs continue to flourish and grow. These movements catch on, and they inspire many to believe in a Britain without German authority informing its decisions. In time, this develops into a mass movement demanding the end of German domination. Mass meetings demanding greater representation in Berlin and an end to German controls over British affairs become more common, though those at the centre of such meetings disagree over how total they want British independence to be. In time, such desires are reconciled into more effective British political parties, and thanks to the work of a number of Anglo-German sympathisers in Berlin, 
greater representation and the opportunity to bring about real change in British political life becomes available. With the prospect of radical change and a great increase in British freedoms on the cards, the Anglo-German class cry foul and begin to claim that their way of life is in danger. Before long, the different strands of Anglo-German life are unified under one banner, the German Unionists, who call for Britain to remain a part of the German Empire, owing to the benefits that such a partnership allows for all. These Anglo-Germans fear above all that a parliament in London, giving Britain control over its own affairs, would ostracise them from British daily life, and with the situation across the world growing more tense in the face of increased armaments and military display, these German Unionists elect to form their own military organisations dedicated to the preservation of the German link to Britain, by force if necessary. This sets off a series of alarm bells in Berlin, where a newly elected liberal-style government, in partnership with the British nationalists, now faces something of a quandary, In German society, the conservative German party side with the German Unionists and promise not to abandon the latter even if the German Liberals decide to. Just as civil war between these two pillars of Anglo-German society seems inevitable, the impossible happens. Germany's imperial unity is apparently saved by the outbreak of a world war. With news that the aggressive American Empire has attacked the defenceless Mexican Dominion, British citizens are drawn to defend the small power against the strong, and in emotional scenes join forces with their Anglo-German Unionist cousins to fight the good fight and join the German army once again. Despite the show of unity though, a contingent of British nationalists calling for total separation from Germany's empire by military means descendants of those unsuccessful organisations that had tried and failed in the past, oppose this new war, arguing that it is not in Britain's interests to fight for Germany. Instead, this minority group practice drilling in the streets, while these British extremists infiltrate the more moderate cultural organisations throughout the country, and even infiltrate the British Dominion army itself. On the other hand, armed with a German promise to hold off on granting the British a parliament until after the war, since the main goal is winning the war now, most within Britain's nationalist society still argue that force will not be necessary to achieve independence. These individuals are represented best by the leader of the British nationalists, who implores all young British men to fight for Germany, to prove to Berlin that British nationalists can be trusted despite their patchy record of loyalty to the German Empire. Above all, these British nationalists claim, we must put our faith in the Germans to deliver our independence after the war, as promised. As many Britons are serving abroad in Mexico, though, the British extremists strike at home, seizing key regions in London and holding many areas to ransom against an unprepared Anglo-German army response. After some time, the leaders of the revolt are defeated. They are paraded through the streets of London as bitter citizens hurl abuse at them. In the mind of most Britons, these extremists have stabbed their relatives in the back as they served abroad, and they are outraged that their capital now lies in flames. Nationalist leaders in Berlin lament the incident as unfortunate, 
while German Unionists see it as proof that they will never be safe in the kind of self-ruled Britain that the Nationalists had hoped for. Centred on Cornwall in the West, these German Unionists carve out for themselves a unique identity and a sense of purpose, and determine to resist to the end any notions of British self-rule under a British Nationalist-dominated Parliament. Complexities then emerge when the German authorities seek to punish those extremists that had launched the revolt. Questions are levelled at these individuals, that how dare they attack the capital of the British Dominion, how dare they act against His Supreme Majesty, Kaiser Wilhelm XIII, when the German Empire is occupied in a foreign war. Prosecutors advocate the harshest penalties. Accusations of treason are loudly made in both the press and daily life, while the people of London seem somewhat uneasy about the way this is about to go. The hurried execution of the British rebels by German guns had been intended to hush the whole thing up, but it is clear within a few weeks that a trap had been fallen into. As the British extremists make grand sacrificial gestures and write symbolic memoirs detailing their willingness to die for the cause of British independence, a fire is lit and slowly burns under average Britons. As the war against America rages on, Anglo-Germans and British nationalists continue to die in large numbers, only to hear of what is going on at home. It is even rumoured that the sneaky British extremists had sought American help in their quest for violent independence. Yet, some within the rank and file of the German Empire's British contingent are unsure what to make of the news. Did their extremist comrades have a right to rebel against the undoubtedly foreign but increasingly benign rule of the German Empire? And will it bring the kind of independence that the extremists desire, with legislative independence apparently around the corner? Back home in Britain, and it is clear that Londoners are arming themselves for something. In the months after what's being called the London Rising, average Britons seem to be declaring themselves for the extremist cause in droves. Allusions are made to the bravery of the extremists, to die so gallantly for a cause that they believed in. Increasingly, the once extremist British group comes to be seen as more acceptable and commonplace. While another more radical group in British society, founded a decade before the London Rising but having nothing to do with it, is soon hijacked by this new movement. It is now clear that the act of executing the British rebels was a step too far, and while debates are held in Berlin over how the Anglo-German administration should have acted, declarations for the once extremist British group continues apace. A leader emerges to embody the extremist nationalist Britons, and she calls for an all-Britain legislature totally free from either the interference of Germany or the separatism of the German Unionists, where all are free and equal in this new partnership. British independence is declared in London, the scene where the original London Rising had so inspired Britons years before, as Britain prepares itself to detach its island from the German centre in one final push. Charged by years of suppression and cultural revival, and empowered by tales of brave sacrifice, led by selfless Britons, who had laid down their lives for the dream of a genuinely sovereign British island. This is the incredible alternative history I wanted you guys to imagine. And if you didn't find the act of imagining it all that hard, then you've already grasped 
Ireland's history up to and just beyond the 1916 Rising. I feel it is a useful exercise, but I cannot claim credit for it. Recently, to commemorate the actual centenary of the Rising, Irish television station TV3 released a three-part series called Trial of the Century, which imagined what would happen if Patrick Pearce were given a trial by jury and not hurriedly executed as he and his comrades were. As a concept, it was in many ways breathtakingly and refreshingly unique, and it actually led to a greater exposition of the actual historical complexities and questions of 1916 than a simpler 1916 Rising documentary would have. The opening alternative exercise that you've just listened to comes courtesy of Patrick Pierce's imaginary self-defence during the trial, with some embellishments and additions of my own, where Pierce asks the jury to imagine such a scenario, painting a vivid, surprisingly effective picture that really resonates with his audience, only to reveal that this is the history of Ireland, and to challenge any one of his contemporaries to claim that Ireland in 1916, just as the Britain in this alternative history, did not have the right to resist foreign... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market rule as he and Ireland did. It is in many ways an intensely challenging question, and when I heard it I felt compelled to share it, so that you could see for yourself how complex and loaded the issue of the 1916 Rising is to historians, Irish or otherwise. Whether it was against a fictional Kaiser Wilhelm XIII or the real King George V that the rebels went against, What we must denote from both stories is the background theme of constitutional nationalists seeking to gain legislative independence for their home country. What it comes down to is the question, was the violence, the loss of life and the destruction worth it, or were those that acted in the 1916 Rising, just as those in the fictional London Rising, impatient radicals that should have just waited? 
we, of course, kind of compare the two stories with equal measure, since far too many differences exist, but I really appreciated what imaginary Patrick Pierce was trying to say in his appeal to the courtroom, and it leads me to a more personal point. When you hold views like I do, it is often hard to communicate the fact that, while you believe that the 1916 Rising should not have happened, you also believe that Britain should not have been ruling Ireland in the first place. Britain as an empire had no right to Ireland. It had no right to claim Irish loyalties or accuse Irish citizens of treason against a monarch that they could not possibly feel much love for. Despite the close proximity of the islands, Ireland and Britain were never going to be close friends. Britain was bigger, had more resources and access to better technologies, and so was able to dominate its smaller rival faster than its rival could grow to defend itself. The British Empire was wrong to exploit the Irish, to arrest the Irish and to sentence to death the Irish, who were merely fighting for their freedom from an empire that did not represent or treat them equally. And no matter what some historians claim, it is very difficult to state without reservations that Britain treated the Irish the same as other members of their home islands, which the Irish were meant to be intrinsic parts of, such as the Welsh or Scottish. The famine was a great manifestation of this, where the British were far too slow in dealing with the Irish disaster, and actually continued to ship food out of the island as the famine wore on. Had such a catastrophe occurred in Scotland, Wales, or even England, you can imagine the British political machine scrambling to do all it could to protect those citizens. Irish citizens, on the other hand, were apparently more expendable. It should go without saying that the British Empire did, and in my opinion still does, have a lot to answer for where Ireland is concerned. Perhaps the relationship was strained because Britain did not trust the Irish, but this was surely because the Irish had rebelled against the foreign rule of Britain, that the Irish themselves did not want and did not need since the English occupation of their lands began. In the name of British security that the Empire inhabit and administer their island neighbour, or else surely an enemy of the British Empire would use Ireland as a staging post for an attack and would co-opt the support of the Irish in the name of such a goal. What is interesting is that by acting in the name of their own security against future attack, the British ensured that foreign help was the only way the Irish could imagine being freed, and thus they seemed increasingly more dangerous to London, as Spanish, then French, and then finally German aid was sought over the course of the centuries in the name of a free and independent Ireland. As Britain pointed to the Irish actions as vindication of their policy of necessary Irish security, what they never seemed to accept was that, had they or their ancestors only acted differently, Ireland could have been as amicable a pillar of Britain as the rest of its contingent parts. In short, by acting in the way that they acted, what London participated in was a self-fulfilling prophecy of continued revolt and danger. What I want to argue, and what I have sought to argue throughout this mini-series, is that, while many of you may point to the 1916 Rising as justified in the context of a British occupation that stretched back many centuries and plainly, blatantly defied the laws of national sovereignty, I believe this did not give the Irish a right in 1916 to act in the way that they did. Such a point is hard to make. I even have difficulty saying it, to be honest. But I firmly believe that violence is not the answer now, and that it was not the answer in 1916. 
we debase ourselves as historians, as human beings, if we argue that just because Britain had treated us in Ireland with violence or threats of it for so long, we were bound by national honour or factors of sovereignty to reciprocate with a similar policy of violence. I normally follow the lead of the majority in this case when I want to judge where I should stand on the issue. And in this case, as we have learned already, Ireland has a distinguished history, spanning generations which had sought to achieve through politics what could not be gained through violence. Historians today talk about the danger in applying our own moral code to those that acted in 1916, since we cannot appreciate the factors and influences acting and influencing them at that time, which may have made them more violent or radical. It is said that, instead of doing this, historians should spend their time researching manuscripts, primary source materials, and critiquing the work of other historians, rather than applying their own emotional principles or standards to the men and women of the past. We have to make allowances, in other words, for those that acted, insofar as we have to consider the context of their actions. Only then can we judge them as objective historians. I would be the first to disavow myself of objectivity in this case. It would be unrealistic to claim otherwise given my position today. I will always try my best to see things from both sides, but I'd be lying if I didn't note my bias and account for it in my narrative. Yet at the same time, for all the talk of understanding the radicals in the context of the time, Not enough is written about the need to place ourselves in the shoes of the moderates at the time of 1916. If historical law says that we cannot blame those that acted in the 1916 Rising, who in the process perpetuated a violent culture that they themselves were born into, then we cannot also bemoan or criticise those moderates for acting like sheep, being weak men afraid of conflict or meekly accepting the lot that had been given to them by the British. History is a two-way street, and if we don't tolerate double standards in one area, we cannot tolerate them in another, no matter what rhetoric is used or emotions are appealed to. I find it incredible today that more is not made of the actions of those men who participated in Britain's political process to further the interests of Ireland through peaceful means before 1916. The problem is that these men activists of the Irish Parliamentary Party whose lineage and tradition went back decades in some cases, were forgotten just like the Irish veterans of the First World War that returned home to an Ireland transformed by the post-rising culture of change. Again, much is made of the fact that many of the individuals in the Irish Parliamentary Party, by the outbreak of the First World War and certainly by 1916, had become stagnant in their activism and accusations of arrogance are regularly levelled at the likes of John Redmond, who Dermot Ferreter claimed had combined to form the words of one who was bound by an arrogance and a generational inheritance that was a poisoned chalice. Men in the Irish Parliamentary Party, it is understood, had become lazy and comfortable by 1916, many having been MPs for Ireland since the land reform issue, which incidentally was the last time such men actually campaigned for any real change. By 1916 such politicians had become used to the system and had not expended much energy for some time to change it. Such broad statements are too often made in the place of a much needed survey of Irish political activism before 1916. 
we've already seen that Redmond was biding his time and preparing for the reality of the Home Rule Bill with the passing of the Parliament Act in 1911. It is also the case that many cynics who believed that the Home Rule Bill would never pass because of the House of Lords' veto had accepted by 1914 that they would soon have to eat their words thanks to the results of the Parliament Act, which in itself is historically underrated. And it made it possible for the House of Commons to properly control affairs again in Britain, as the Lords' veto was reduced to a two-use veto that could never again be used to paralyse the British legislature. While it is true that Redmond's naivety led him to commit young men to the British war effort, and that many went to the continent secure in the knowledge of Redmond's assurance that home rule would be the reward, naivety cannot be a historical sin, because if it was, the entire world would have been guilty of it in 1914. Nobody within Westminster, within the Irish Parliamentary Party, within the Fenians or elsewhere, would have been lacking in a measure of naivety. It would be naive for us to claim that the generation should have known better or expected what was to come, or that the British should have known that they wouldn't in good faith be able to promise the passing of Home Rule thanks to the Unionist opposition. When historians accuse men like Redmond of arrogance, All it does is perpetuate the myth that he and his colleagues did not sense the way the wind was blowing in Ireland in 1916, or beforehand. In reality, as we know, Home Rule and the Irish Parliamentary Party which advocated it represented the majority of Irish people at the dawn of the century and beyond, and it was moderate nationalism, not republicanism or the Fedian ideology, which the vast majority of Ireland swore by. It is far more useful, in my opinion, to level the accusation of arrogance at the likes of Patrick Pearce or Tom Clark, who by our narrative had launched an uprising in Ireland in the name of the dead generations that had come before, and in the name of an obsolete and unwelcome Fenian ideology which simply did not resonate with the average Irish citizen by 1916. Rather than accept that ideological tides had passed them by, an acceptance which some people who don't know enough about Irish history claim that the likes of Redmond should have done. Pierce, Clark, Thomas Macdonough, Sean McDermott, and others within the Irish Republican Brotherhood's military council had appointed themselves the self-proclaimed leaders of Ireland's destiny, a destiny which they insisted could only lead anywhere meaningful if it were watered with violence. If that isn't arrogance, then I don't know what is. To claim that you are the only one that could possibly be capable of leading by example, since you are the only one that knows what Ireland truly wants or needs. It is just so wrong that people are so willing to criticise the likes of the Irish Parliamentary Party, who were the legitimate representation of Ireland by way of mandate, however you want to feel about them personally, yet people refrain from pointing out the obvious all too often in the case of those that rose and thereafter died. I fully appreciate that people joined the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the Irish Citizens Army, Cumann and the Irish Volunteers for different reasons, and many didn't expect to fight or die as they did. I'm not saying every rebel was the same or that the IRB were wrong for wanting an independent Ireland free from British influence. What I am saying is this. How dare they claim to speak for all of Ireland, and how dare they invoke 
the previous historical actions of men that they clearly did not understand, when the reality of Ireland went totally against what they were doing. They knew full well that they were in the minority, and yet this did not stop them acting out against the majority, for ends that Ireland as a nation did not support. Does this mean that Britain's rule of Ireland was right? Of course not. Foreign rule is never right, because in my opinion all national identities deserve national representation. But we have to look at the British Empire in the same context. The British had no right to rule in India. Germany had no right to rule in Southeast Africa. Italy had no right to rule in Libya. France had no right to rule in Algeria. Spain had no right to rule in Morocco. The United States had no right to rule in Cuba. Disgraces in human rights and the repression of national ambitions were a common feature of the early 20th century. Britain did not have the monopoly on empire, just as it did not have the monopoly on the suppression of human rights, the covering up of controversies, or the suppression of national groups. The Anglo-Irish relationship is a loaded one for so many reasons, but the pace and explosion of hate within it shares so many similarities with any other country and its neighbours. The Poles and Russia, everyone in the Balkans and Serbia, Romania hates Hungary, Bulgaria hates Romania. The seemingly unending imperial quest to crush expressions of nationhood was unfortunately rampant by 1916. Just look at what happened to Serbia at the opening phases of the First World War. Even though it flew in the face of romantic ideas of nationalism that the era created, or that it went against the professed goals of the rights of small nations to exist. Britain, in a greatly hypocritical act in 1914, professed a desire to defend the rights of small nations, to uphold their sovereignty and defend their independence. This while, the small nation of Ireland had not been free for centuries, and was ruled from London. We know empires are and were a bad thing. We know that the suppression of rights is and was a bad thing. It helps no one to invoke the universal bad empire clause and apply it to Britain in 1916, thereby excusing the rebels of 1916 for what they did. Two wrongs don't make a right, that is the universal cliché, but it rings true here. Centuries of suppressing Irish identity didn't give the IRB's military council a mandate to act any more than it would have had a mandate had the Irish been an integral part of the United Kingdom and happy and comfortable with his lot in that kingdom. Now, if it had been the case that the British were regularly executing Irish citizens, subjecting them to torture, burning their lands and killing their children, etc., it would be a different story. I hope that much would be obvious. This would introduce us to what's called an altruistic evil, or evil committed in the name of a high cause or a sincerely good ideal. If an evil, say a violent, brutal rebellion, is committed against a brutal regime, and it therefore saves that state's people from future suffering by establishing a freely independent state, then it would be an altruistic evil, since it would be an evil which causes good. This was an idea posed by former Chief British Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in his book, Not in God's Name, and I have summarised it as best as I can there. It is, I feel, a good model for applying to the debate of 1916, and the moral basis or justification for it. 
one thing is certain, and this is a fact that the jury is well and truly united on. Ireland was not any more significantly suppressed or violently treated than any other portion of the United Kingdom or the rest of the world for that matter by 1916. It was a calm society, largely loyal to the war effort being fought against the United Kingdom, and its populace was initially horrified and bewildered at the prospect of rebellion erupting in their capital. In that sense then, 1916 was certainly not an altruistic evil, because it was a revolt carried out by a minority of the population against a regime that was in the top most progressive nations of the world by 1916. The British Empire obviously would not rank high on our moral compass today, and I believe that is where historians are correct when they say that we can't apply our moral standards to individuals of history. But it's important to make a distinction, because I'm not trying to argue that a rebellion in 1916 against a brutal and destructive British administration, which was supported by the majority of Ireland, was wrong. What I'm arguing is that a rebellion which horrified and angered the people of Dublin in 1916 should evoke the same emotions in us, now. If we possess different moral standards to our ancestors of a hundred years ago, then we still do hold certain things in common. We still deplore the killing of innocents, the wasting of life, the extremist elements wreaking havoc on society, the needless deaths of children, the maiming of men and women trying to go about their daily lives. We still deplore the arrogance and deluded ideologies that launched those revolts. We still deplore the destruction of homes, of families and of livelihoods. Similarly, the people of 1916 as a majority saw what had just been done to their capital and in whose name it had been done, and they were both angered and upset that it had occurred. If the majority of those in 1916-era Ireland would have condemned the actions of the rebels, why shouldn't we? This has been a kind of exhibition of Zach's views on the subject from a perspective that hopefully makes it more engaging. If any of my arguments have resonated with you or angered you significantly, Adam, I hope you'll stick around when we resume our coverage of The Rising in the next episode. There's been a lot of food for thought in this episode, but what I want to do above all is help you think about The Rising in a different way. We will flesh out the moral arguments and debates more over the coming episodes, but since this was perhaps the most personal episode of the miniseries so far, I would genuinely appreciate some feedback to know how you all found it. With that out of the way, thanks for listening. And I'll see you guys soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.